Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 128 of the Canadian Real Estate Investor. As always, it's Nick Hill and Daniel Foch here. And today we're talking about the government of Canada deciding to unlock $20 billion in new financing, hoping to make for $30,000 new apartments per year in Canada. Sounds like a realtor wrote that, like unlocking. Like it wasn't, it wasn't there. <laughs> They're creating it really. I mean, yeah. It's, it's not like, like it was just in a vault or like, you know, right. in the next level of the real estate yeah. economic game that we're right. playing here. Um, before we do that, we wanted to remind you that we have meetups every month, typically first Tuesday of every month. So October 10th is the next meetup. If you're interested, type in realestatemeetups.ca in your browser or the meetup.com link in the show notes. I've been told that clicking the realestatemeetups.ca link in the show notes doesn't work actually. So What? Right? So anyway, I don't know because I think it forwards to the meetup.com. So uh. anyway, so now we know and we'll have a proper link for you in the show notes. Um, courses running now. So we have a great co- cohort going. It's been really awesome. Thank you to all of you who signed up. It's been such a pleasure to to be developing this course with you and we appreciate the feedback. We have a wait list now for the January cohort and we may be releasing a Christmas present related to the course as well. Check it out at realestatecourse.ca. One more piece of housekeeping here. Check out the newsletter that we've partnered with Patter on where we give you short summaries on real estate news, throwing a couple charts and you can read it and you don't have to listen to our voices, which is maybe a bonus for some out there. It's uh, distilled down into just a few minutes read. So if you want that, you can subscribe in the show notes. Uh, But without further ado, Dan, we've got a lot to talk about here. So why don't we jump in? Yeah. Canada mortgage bonds increase designated to new rental housing construction. So today, the Honorable Christia Freeland, Deputy Prime Minister, I guess it wasn't today, it was a couple days ago, but it said in the thing today, I guess September 26th, uh, Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance announced that the annual limit for Canada mortgage bonds is being increased from $40 billion up to $60 billion. This change is the next step in the government's plan to build more homes faster and will unlock low cost financing for multi unit rental construction. I think it's funny, eh? Like they all there's no innovation in the names of these programs. Build more homes faster. Well, I've heard what? that like every province has one. I gotta hand it to them. I mean, we did real estate investing course. We did yeah. real estate merch. It is very meta. You know? It's true. <laughs> like very self descriptive. They're taking a page out of our book, yeah. right? Yeah. This new measure will help build up to thirty thousand more rental apartments per year. I don't necessarily know where that number that number came from, but I'm interested to find out. The Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, better known as CMHC, and the Canadian Mortgage Bond Program support low cost financing of new rental housing by providing mortgage loan insurance and securitization. There is currently unmet demand for developers and builders to access low cost financing. This comes right from the press release, by the way, which is preventing them from building much needed rental apartments. Um, So for those of you who remember, we did a full episode about MLI. Episode 78. Yeah. And MLI stands for mortgage loan insurance, which it says in this release. With the federal government removing goods and services tax on new rental housing as proposed in the, this is another great name, Affordable Housing and Groceries Act, the demand for financing is expected to further increase. Yeah. And just this, this is not in the press release here, but Dan, you know, just going back to the builders here, and this will probably come up again as we, as we chat through this, but 
you know, CMHC did have $50 billion in subscriptions and projects submitted and only $40 billion there. So, you know, this $60 billion is a very good step in the right direction, right? It allows for that $50 billion to possibly be captured and maybe another $10 billion worth of projects to get into that pipeline. And, and hopefully that will decrease the ridiculous, almost year-long wait times that we're seeing for some of these projects. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so and, and I think there's a there's a couple of different things, right? So because we don't really know if that forty billion that was for the affordable housing fund was all for this, and and this they do say in this release that it it is supposed to all go to rental housing construction, but it becomes part of a bigger capital pool that eventually it could co- you know cause this whole thing to be a little bit inflationary because you're creating more and more demand. Mm-hmm. At least that's what's you know some people smarter than me have been arguing against. My my I was originally pretty like optimistic about this program and I still am actually but but anyway so yeah let's get let's get back to it so to, to ensure builders have the low cost financing required to build more rental projects the government is increasing the Canada mortgage bond insurance limit by 20 billion per year and designating the increased amount for funding mortgage loans on multi-unit rental projects that are insured by CMHC eligible rental projects must have at least five rental units and can include apartment buildings student housing and seniors' residences. Now, this is probably in response to the fact that CMHC is also predicting that Canada needs four point, sorry, three point four five million more homes by twenty thirty to cut housing costs as population continues to grow. And and that's actually on top of what we need. That's an additional three point four right. million ver- compared to what we're already building. So, but Dan, you just mentioned there at the end. Let's look at these three asset classes that uh, that the you know the press release has has outwardly said in that the the finances are going to be focusing on, right? And that is apartment buildings, student rentals, and senior housings. And let's look at why. Okay, so the first thing is we're going to start with students. It's no secret that we have seen a massive jump in international students here in Canada. In fact, the number of international students in Canada has increased by 162.7% since 2010. And there were a total of 807,750 study permit holders in Canada in December, and that's and over 190,000 more than in 2021. It's wild. That's literally 2% of our population. And we are, I think we, based on the last numbers from um, the international, there's like an agency for this. I can't remember the name of it. I want to say like IRCC or something like that. But um, they stated that Canada is the number one destination for international students in the world right now. Wow. Yeah. After uh, the US and the UK. Wild. Yeah. I mean, these figures surpass um, Canada's target of 450,000 foreign students by 2022. And that was set out in the country's 2014 international education strategy. So uh, we have almost doubled that. So there's a ton of international students, but that's in addition to all the national students as well. Yeah. And and so... It's interesting because I saw somebody tweet out recently and I didn't, I had no idea the substantial economic impact that international students had on, and it seems like our government really is like almost a one trick pony. You know, we, we know how to basically run our economy like a housing Ponzi scheme where more people need to consume the houses than we have houses. And then, you know, we either sell, sell them or rent them to one another. And as long as that keeps going, then there will be re- relatively infinite demand and the price or rent can always accelerate. And that seems to be continuing to work. So So, what was was that tweet? Yeah. So the tweet says, and this is again, to quantify the size of the economy of that whole thing. Slow clap for Canada. Canada makes two 
sorry, $22.3 billion from tuition fees. So Canada makes $22.3 billion from tuition fees. That is more than their most major export, which is auto parts at $19.2 billion. 76% of that comes from international students. Wow, that is that is truly crazy. And you know what? I hate to say it, but they were recently referred to as a lucrative asset by one of our lovely politicians. Yeah, well, I mean, 20... $22.3 billion and 76% of that is like 16 point something billion. So yeah, I mean, I think that they've made their position pretty clear here and they obviously are using it as an economic driver, whether or not that's responsible or irresponsible. I mean, some economists have, have said certain things, but and a lot of people are starting to speak up against like, you know, the poor living conditions, exploitation um, that's happening in this space. And maybe there's a middle ground to be found between you know, people who are arguing against it and, and the government's perspective on it. Um, but the reality is, um, and we're going to get to this later because there, there's two other types of asset classes that we're going to be discussing. And the other major hump in the demographic is old people. But our population, like most populations around the world, is aging. And if we don't offset that with young people, then that is a perhaps potentially worse economic problem. And so this is where the necessity of and the simplicity of using international students to offset to skew that down because there's nobody younger and and more guaranteed to want to jump into the economy after they're educated within that economy than international students, right? So yeah, yeah. I mean, this is becoming a a serious problem across the country, like like a very serious problem. I've spoken with people in in British Columbia, Alberta, and several other university towns across Ontario, such as Peterborough, North Bay, Waterloo, Guelph, Kingston, and more. And some of the anecdotes uh, we're getting are are kind of crazy, right? These students, in some cases, are living in hotels or Airbnbs, they're commuting from home or from very far away just to get to school. And in some cases, they're just piling into rooms or houses where we see two or more people in, in a bedroom. And, and I mean, you know, I don't want to get into it, but there are some there are some real horror stories out there. And how is that? How are any of this going to help a student while they're trying to learn? That's the goal of a student is to, is to try to learn. If you are living in you know, these crazy, horrible situations, how is that going to help you do what you're trying to do? Yeah, I, I really first learned the real impact of this when we had, so we, I have a, a rental property over an hour from North Bay, Canada College, who is, and Canada has been one of the ones who's really at the center of this from critiques from certain economists and demographers who are saying, you know, they've expanded so much and they haven't provided the necessary housing. And so I think the numbers actually from Mike Moffat is like, <laughs> Um, these schools have inter- increased their international student enrollment by 240% and they've increased their housing supply by 7% in the same period of time. Math. Right. Mm, so tricky stuff. Right. Yeah. So that's not going to work and that's not long-term sustainability. Um, but the fascinating part is I have, I, I have this rental property. It's a multiplex, uh, on a, on a nice piece of land and it's an hour and a half drive from, from Canada or Canada and North Bay very harsh winters during the school year, among many other things. It would would not be easy to get to school every single day um, if I was a student living in this house. We had 200 applications for students. And and we were saying to them like, hey, look, I think you need to like get it, like understand, like maybe maybe just drive halfway. (laughs) Well, no, not even that. Like, I mean, I get that. Like people are driving until they qualify on their student rentals, but it's like drive those roads and then imagine them with 
northern ontario amount of snow on it and that you know what i mean and reverse engineer okay is this the right decision for my student housing decision one way yeah and and safety and things like that right um and subsequent costs with so anyway that's just my anecdote that i've seen this and touched it firsthand and and we've been doing a lot of transactions in student rentals so and we're, we're going to chat a little bit about that because is, is there a way that we can contribute to solving this problem as investors while also making a little bit of money in the process but anyways you I, I was mentioning a specific school and you're saying you know should this be on the schools right yeah i mean like sh- you know as as we just said these universities and colleges keep on accepting students which it's just which is fine and great but who does the responsibility fall on for student housing should it be the schools i mean the university of british columbia ubc is is one of them that is trying to build more yeah so they say with more than 15,000 beds across the vancouver and okanagan campuses ubc is the largest student residence provider in canada and plans to add another 4 4800 beds or 4300 in vancouver and 500 at Okanagan over the next 10 to 15 years at an estimated cost of $1.2 billion. I mean, 10 to 15 years for less than 5,000. I mean, is that, you know, again, moving the needle? Um, it is, but, you know, I, I don't think nearly enough. And it's it's getting unfortunate because experts are saying that international students are particularly vulnerable to these housing not only just affordability issues, but availability issues, and they're being increasingly blamed for worsening them. But let me make this very clear. It's not their fault. They were sold a dream, a promise, and now they are facing a very unfortunate and harsh reality. Yeah. So another article that I wanted to pull up, although before I do that, I just did some quick math. So they're so they're bringing these beds to market at a cost of $250,000 per bed. Because if you divide that $1.2 billion by 48 Hundred beds that they plan to to bring to market. It's two hundred fifty k per bed. So seems pricey. I think so, right? Like you're yeah. you're, you're typically paying two hundred fifty thousand a door. I would say in 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 good in duplex good, markets, good duplex right. markets. Yeah. So and this is where you and know that's for it, like a full house, kitchens, bathrooms. I'm assuming, right? Yeah, like, exactly. So I'm assuming this would be like these are like dorm rooms, right? So it's like you you know it's like literally a bedroom or a glorified bedroom, yeah, bedroom with room for a desk and maybe a mini fridge. And, yeah. Um, yeah, we're not talking personal bathrooms or right. You know, these these have shared bathrooms, shared kitchens, if they are abiding by the traditional dorm style university college. Yeah. So to me, this is where one of those things that, you know, a lot of people are quick to say, oh, the government should be building housing. The government should be building student housing or any kind of housing, rental housing, affordable housing, this, that. That's not affordable housing. I mean, maybe it is, but that that's not an easy way to make housing not affordable is build it so expensively that you can't make any money or it makes no economic sense to rent it out on, uh, at an affordable basis. Like, the public sector is guaranteed to make anything so much more expensive than it needs to be. I mean, so so the point my point here is that if you're a, a landlord or want, want to be a student landlord and you can bring units to market at a cheaper rate than that, you're literally getting an arbitrage against your biggest competitor, who is the biggest housing a student housing provider in in the country. And 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 I think the point is we can right like a lot of these large multi bedroom houses in some of these markets that we're going to discuss are have good potential to be investment opportunities. But I digress. Foreign students are being tricked into thinking they want there they can get permanent residency by studying Canada experts warn. So that's an article uh, in the Globe and Mail that came out two days ago on the on the twenty fifth. Again, like these are just there's you're starting to see externalities or problems stacking up as a result yeah. of that. And I think to me it's a very clear trend that's ha- that's taking place that potential opportunity for us to actually have social good, create social value while you know 
making money in Canadian real estate. Yeah, so let's get into that, Dan, because when we start to look at the stats and understand the magnitude of just this one issue alone, right, just this one contributing factor to the housing crisis that we find ourselves in, it becomes quite clear why there is such a push for this new funding to be used specifically for student rentals, among other things, right? So how do we capitalize as investors? How do we help capitalize and and help solve this trend while also, you know, making a little bit of money as investors renting to students? Yeah, so I, I mentioned I really realized the impact of this when we got the 200 applicants from for that student rental or for, for a non-student rental, but stu- students wanted to rent it and it was an hour away from the college in very snowy weather. And uh, I mean... CMHC obviously wants some of this money to go towards student rental construction. Um, but I think that as small cap investors, there's a lot of opportunity here. I mean, students in a lot of cases, so CMHC is, is difficult because on the student rental side, there's a, there's a, uh, MLI select, you need a certain number of units similar to how they need five plus units to be in the, to get into their apartment stream. Um, and so it doesn't work for somebody who, you know, wants to buy a single family residential house with seven bedrooms in it as an example, mm-hmm. but which is a typical student house. That you yeah, see, yeah. But there are, you know, I mean, but on the same token, you know, as an investor, you can buy, you can typically buy a seven bedroom house. I mean, seven, maybe a little excessive, but you buy ex- a four bedroom house and add <laughs> yeah. three bedrooms yeah, or whatever or it two. is, but yeah. yeah, or whatever, like, you know, it could just be a normal house and, you know, you can buy that with residential credit. So you don't really need programs like MLI Select. I think Mm -hmm. this is to help build at scale stuff, which I'm hoping that we'll see as a result of it. But I mean, you and I just did a couple of these, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've we've been, you know, obviously this is no secret, right? People know that student rentals are a major thing that that we need to see across the country. And now we've been doing like a lot of these deals, we've been doing, you know, six and a half, seven and a half cap, even more in some cases. And and the good thing is with student rentals without getting too deep into the weeds, because we'll do a full episode, maybe unpacking it. But there's a lot of major benefits for student rentals, right? Higher turnover, you know, you don't have to deal with long-term tenants. So if it's a six and a half cap this year, it could be a nine cap in a couple of years if you're able to keep turning over and, and keep making that property better. Yeah. So this is, a, this is an interesting point because they typically rent by a bedroom, um, but the tenure, the length of a lease is short. Like at, at most, if you're, you know, if your tenants really like the place and stay for, they're usually in first year, they're going to be in res probably, but mm. maybe not anymore. But so they're going to be there maybe three, four years. Max. Right? Yeah. Max. And yeah. so after that four year period of time, you would be able to bring it up to the new rents when they, when they're going to live elsewhere. But the, you know, the, the reality is typically students aren't renting, they're renting one year at a time. Yeah. Maybe they'll yeah. do two. And so you're getting a lot of turnover. And I mean, we discussed this on the, infl- in the inflation hedge episode, right? Um, rent control, um, takes away your pricing power as a landlord, right? It tra- takes away your ability to, uh, increase your prices at the rate of inflation because right now rent control is below inflation. The easiest way to fight against that, not fight against it, it's not like it's like some evil, but the easiest way to mitigate against that f- impact is through this higher turnover asset class, mm-hmm. right? So Airbnb would be the extreme example where you're turning over and renewing your rents your every hospitality day. Hospitality at that point. Yeah. yeah. But student rentals are probably the shortest rental period other yeah. than like a medium term rental. You can still have that long term, that, you know, buy and hold long term mentality. You're just switching out your tenants. I think the average is literally just, just less than two years right. for, for student rentals. So, yeah. So, and, and I mean, to get an understanding for the impact of that, like when you and I were, went to Guelph, because we both went to the yeah. same school. 
what were you paying for a bedroom rental? Five hundred oh, bucks, probably, right? I, I think we paid six hundred a room, and it was expensive back then. Right. And this is like I'm not going to age myself too badly here, but this is going on I don't know a decade and a half right. ago, right? Yeah, like but, I'm 34 now, and and uh, and I but like we were right off of University Avenue, so we were minute like three four minute walk from the school in a beautiful old house. Like it, we had a really nice setup. I mean, I would imagine that that would have and, and we know that even places that aren't close to university are renting for in some cases almost a thousand bucks a room yeah i know Crazy. i know and so this is my like i would have been five like well my first investment um was a student rental in in guelph and i was renting for 500 bucks a room back then and now the say a rental in the same area would be a thousand bucks i think as we were leaving like those solstice buildings were being built mm. and they were they were charging 700 so but anyway the point is the rents have gone up so significantly over the last period of time and you would have had the ability to capitalize on that as a as a student rental owner during that period of time and and the reality is like it's not it's not as bad as like or it's not as like demonized student rentals aren't as demonized as like people who are renting you know the evil landlords or whatever because yeah, students aren't going to buy a house at they're never like no student is going to buy a house at at university so you're not competing with them or taking housing stock away from them you are very much a housing creator and considered a housing creator as a student rental landlord so the, the only thing that i wanted to mention is you are typically renting by room yeah and I, that, that does present some challenges from from the lending side of things right dan because uh, you know traditional lenders will will often look at something like that and especially if there's a rent roll or something like that included um, and they'll look at that as as almost a rooming house or a boarding house, which most of them, if not all, traditional lenders don't like. Right, and and so you know, there's a couple of different ways that you can offset uh, for this. I would say two or three. So number one is a lot of people would have just bought, you know, maybe a four bedroom house and not cut it up into multiple bedrooms. Like there's still a living space for the yeah. students and whatever. That seems to have gone away because in order to make the numbers work with the current rate environment and you current prices, living room and uh, put some yeah. drywall up and yeah, now you got a six bedroom. And yeah, like no living room. And there are limits to the number of adults that can share a dwelling. It varies on a municipal basis mm -hmm. um, based on bylaw and fire code. So make sure you know what those are if you're interested in becoming a student rental investor. But a lot of other people are dealing with this. Let's assume that you are compliant with bylaw. You have the um, allowable number of adults living in a house. And still the lender says, you know, okay, well, it appears that you have multiple tenants. Well, you don't have to rent them on, on separate leases. So a lot of people do it by aggregating the lease or having a head lease because in a lot of cases you're getting, I mean, for me at least, in Guelph, it was like a couple of buddies that would come in and rent the house, right? Yeah. And so they're all going to share one lease anyway. And that usually is more favorable to lenders than definitely a separate lease per bedroom. Uh, another, another bonus uh, addition there is usually mom and dad are yeah. behind some of this stuff, right? I mean, definitely um, parent co-signing for sure. Yeah, exactly. Right. So there's a little bit of insurance there. Yeah. And, and again, guys, there are some lenders out there that do specialize in, in this stuff. And there's some products that are, that are meant for that type of asset class. So if you want to know anything about that, reach out to me, send an email to the show or. Yeah. I guess or, you're not like legally, allowed to talk about that no because no. i not actually like that's actually that's not bs like you're not allowed to name typical like specific lenders lenders and, and, and like products that, so. yeah okay so let's wrap it up on the student rental yeah because you mentioned moms and dads co-signing but i think we're going to skip a generation yeah. <laughs> yeah so moms and dads are great but let's talk about grandmas and grandpas let's here. do it so this is taken from StatsCan. Uh, portrait of Canada's growing population aged 85 and older from the 2021 census from Statistics Canada. 
a few stats from um, it outlines that they over eighty. Sorry, I'm so bad at reading numbers lately, man. I, so I we I just had a baby. We just had a baby, and uh, not not, not you and I. No, 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 we no, just no. had a baby. No, my, <laughs> the show uh, just yeah, had a baby. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The show is baby. The baby. He's yeah. he's uh, he's, so I'm, he's I'm been tired. Yeah, sleep's been uh, anyway. So over eight hundred sixty-one thousand people aged eighty-five or older were continued were counted in the twenty twenty-one census, more than twice the number observed in the two thousand and one census. So the number of old people has uh, more than doubled. The population aged eighty-five and older is one of the fastest growing age groups, with a twelve percent increase from twenty sixteen. Currently, two point three percent of the population is aged. 85 and older. So almost the same amount as international students. Yeah. Over the next 25 years, by 2046, the population aged 85 and older could triple to almost 2.5 million people. Wild. Okay. So I, I and I don't, don't want to offend any elderly people here. So I'm, I'm calling, you know, 85 and older is kind of old, old. And, you know, younger than that, would I would call it young, old. So uh, I also was very interested in... Um, the people that are kind of around 65 plus, right? So in 2010, 14.1% of Canada's population was age 65 or older. This number has increased to 19% since 2022. So that's 19% of Canada's population is above 65. Stats Canada also forecasts this trend will continue reaching 22.5% by 2030. So almost a quarter of our entire population will be 65 and older. Crazy. So as a result, the number of working age Canadians, 15 to 64 for each senior, 65 and up is falling. So there's a, a proportion mismatch. And this is where I think the government really is incentivized to backfill with um, international students, especially. So in 1966, there were 7.7 working age Canadians for every senior. This ratio has fallen to 3.4 in 2022. And these ratios are really important for demographers, people who mm -hmm. study demographics. Like the other one is uh, called the replacement rate, right? And that's how the, if your birth rate is, I think it has to be greater than 2.1 Yeah. in order to that for your population to be able to replace itself. At, almost no countries are in the world. Right no, even now. India just fell below yeah. the replacement rate. I think, I just think Af certain African countries are the yeah, only ones that's that it. are. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and so that's, I mean, the, again, these ratios are really good at predicting whether or not we'll see de declines in population, which it seems like is a huge global trend right now. You hear guys like Elon Musk talking about it. You hear guys like Bill Gates talking about it. I mean, I think that, um, you know, it, this is almost like a point where countries could start atrophying or shrinking mm -hmm. almost indefinitely if we don't figure this out. Anyway, so these trends are ongoing and by 2027 forecasts suggest the ratio of working age Canadians to seniors will fall to 3.0. Yeah. And, and as Dan was just saying, that decreasing ratio of working age people to seniors is affecting things like government revenue and expenditures in ways that are already starting to strain government finances and they have been a major contribution in long-term decline in the labor force and the labor force participation rate. The trend is slowing the growth of the government revenue over time. Meanwhile, an aging population is also helping to push spending higher in both the federal and provincial levels. For the federal government, the increased share of Canadians over the age of 65 is pushing up the cost of income support for seniors on programs such as old age and the guaranteed income supplement. At the provincial level, an aging population is putting upward pressure on healthcare spending. Yeah, and I think if you want to see like a, 
country that's a little bit further ahead in their shifting population pyramid than us, like, and what kind of happens in a very bad scenario when they have to start making compromises on their pension system, you're hearing a lot of this happening in Europe. I mean, fr- France would be an extreme example, but Italy, France, Greece, Spain. Yeah. And so when France tried to move their, um, their retirement age up to that was, was a, two years they tried to move yeah, I think from 65 to 67 yeah. there, or 65 to 70 maybe there were literally riots in the streets yeah, yeah. and so um anyway the the easiest way to really like really really visualize this and and i'm i'm, I'm glad that you put this visual in the because mm. I, I used this in the course last week and there's like there's two humps so it's called the population pyramid although it shouldn't be because they thought it was always going to be shaped like a triangle yeah it's not it's okay a population pyramid is a for, for everyone that's not watching this right now which is probably the vast majority of a pyramid we think a pyramid we all know what a pyramid looks like right this does not look like a pyramid it looks like a pyramid and someone went and erased you know half of the yeah. sides of the low kind of like an hourglass maybe kind of, yeah it's more of an hourglass so i don't even know we've got I feel like i'm blue. taking a rorschach test right now or whatever <laughs> so we've got blue on one side representing males and red on the right side representing females we've got all the way at the top 100 years old and all the way at the bottom zero years old and this is what a traditional population pyramid is not supposed to look like. Yeah, I mean, so it ramps out from the top, obviously, because there's not a lot of people uh, older than 100. And then it kind of really gets into a big lump from, let's say, 70 to 55 years of age mm-hmm. in both the male and female side. So that's kind of your baby boomer. That's that aging population that we're, that we're discussing right now, or I guess some Gen Xers are in there. And then there's a, a big drop, um, like a... I guess you would call it a bit of a trough um, from 60 to 40 years of age, give or take. So there's not, or there's a smaller number of people in that age category. And then you have this, I guess this would be our generation, basically people from 20 to 40 years of age, millennials, where there's a a big hump again. And so the two big opportunities, like, and if you're just purely trying to create an investment thesis, which is a way to identify a trend and capitalize on it using your money, I would say the first place to look would be at this population pyramid and say, oh, okay, well, I'm I'm selling space to human beings. That's what I do as a landlord, right? Like, let's just boil this down. Who are, where can I find the two most identifiable groups of uh, human beings for me to tailor my product to? Okay, well, there's old people and there's young people. And this is where we have these, and they are really more specialized types of housing. I think everybody in between the kind of students and seniors are really just consumers of houses, right? But Mm -hmm. seniors do have unique needs and students have unique needs. Um, And those are your two big humps in the population pyramid right now. Yeah, totally. So, so let's, let's look at this and, and, you know, this aging population is obviously causing issues in its own right that we just talked about. So let's talk about some of those specific issues that seniors are facing when it comes to housing. More than 20% of Canada's population will be 65 within the next five years. That generation, known as baby boomers, were born between 1946 and 1964, and they are deciding to age in place at numbers that we've never seen before. The majority of baby boomer homeowners, 52%, would prefer to renovate their current property over moving. Furthermore, 75% of boomers own their own home, and 17% of them own more than one property. So baby boomers don't want to move. Um, and can you blame them? They they have to sell their prized possession. This is a house where they built a family. Uh, you know, they had kids. They have so many memories. There's a lot of sentimentality attached to it. Um, and 
they bought it for 150k and it's now worth millions and millions of dollars because of inflation. <laughs> yeah. um, and we know that I think something like 70% of the Canadian net, uh, household net worth is tied up in the primary residence. So if they do sell, they're now in competition with other buyers and very much they're go- if they're downsizing, they're going down to the price floor again, which is extremely competitive place to buy. And a unfortunately, house. that price floor is basically a million bucks at this point. Right. And so, but yeah, I mean, even if you're downsizing from a $2 million house to a $1 million house, one, there's so much more competition at 1 million, you get way less bang for your buck. So it, it like the economic, the good economic decision is to stay for them, right? It's like, you know, they, they're getting space at a way cheaper rate than they ever, than they possibly could if they, if they downsize. So I get why a lot of but this is to me the biggest trend in the market right now. Yeah. It's like, you know, the biggest potential trend in the market is what are baby boomers going to do? What is this demo- demographic shift going to cause for these overhouse boomers? And I think you know, there's data from other places in the world, but it's something like baby boomers hold on to 4.8 million spare bedrooms. It says like for um, and and a lot of them are actually like starting to rent them out and stuff like that. But um, I think it was at least two spare bedrooms. Well, actually, there's there's recent studies because I was trying to find I was trying to pull that number and. The there's now studies that say there could be up to 12 million Crazy. spare bedrooms across the country because I think the 5 million number that you're talking about, Dan, was actually just for like Ontario and, oh, and the GTA yeah, kind so, of thing. So yeah. just insane. I mean, 12 million. And, and there was something like the average senior only uses just over 30% of the actual square footage in their house. So... And I think there's a, you know, so there's a guy who did a TED talk on this like a while back and it's like uh, Moore's law, you know, like microchips shrinking every year. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's like, that exists for housing as well. Because our generation, we don't have to store records, right? We don't have to store uh, VHSs, oh, you know what I mean? Or books, I all of that fits into a phone. Yeah. And so we don't like necessarily have as much demand for space to consume. And, and a lot of us aren't going to be wanting these McMansions that a lot of the boomers are in. If only there was a good thing that we could do to them. Mm. <laughs> so how do we figure out financing toward these seniors? And, you know, you know, also let's, let's look at the data because after discussing this and, and, you know, seeing the issues compounding for older people that aren't moving because they don't have anywhere to go, it starts to make a lot of sense as to why we want to see that intentional development in this asset class. So, Dan, how do we build for seniors? I think, um, you know, it's, it's very similar to, um, to students, right? Like you need to, you need to look at their lifestyle. You need to look at what they want. They want proximity to things. In a lot of cases, they need walkability. Like their life literally depends on it because they need to be able to walk. Some, uh, some older person just told me that once you stop walking, it's over. Really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I believe that. And I was honestly. like, damn, okay, that makes sense. I believe that. It makes yeah. a lot of sense. It really does. Um, yeah. I mean, walkability, livability, proximity to transit, healthcare, casinos is a big one. Like that a developer that I know in the senior space, he's like, I always, he's like, I won't develop uh, within <laughs> like a certain distance or not within a certain, di- certain distance of the US border and a casino. They want less space, uh, more amenities. They want to be close to friends and family, and so you, you you know build you have to build these very deliberate communities and housing types and styles for seniors. And and I think it, you know it could be a massive opportunity because they have a lot of money, right? Yeah, I mean it goes back to that good old principle, right? Build it and they will come. And we've made this joke before. Well, no, build it because they're already here and they're looking for somewhere to go. 
Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, the other piece is that uh, Canada has like the third largest square footage per capita in the world after Australia and the the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. So I do think this is, I mean, again, thinking about an investment thesis, the, the trend here from my perspective with boomers isn't maybe so much renting to them, but it's figuring out how to repurpose the assets that they're going to have and how to get those. Because if we see a flood, like, because within the next 10 years or 20 years, like a lot of boomers are either, they're just going to be too old to live in two bedroom houses. Mm -hmm. Sorry, boomers. And that could flood a lot of assets, flood the market with a lot of assets that people like you and I just can't afford. Yeah. Right. And don't want to live in. Like, I don't really want a, a five bedroom McMansion. Well, maybe I do, but I don't know. I, I, <laughs> then, but I don't want it at the price that they want for it, yeah. right? And so the question is, what happens to those? And I, I think those would be great candidates for multiplexes, which is where policy seems to be going. So let's use that to maybe segue to a little bit beyond multiplexes, um, apartment buildings, PBRs. Perhaps blue ribbons? Well, that's a great beer. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Purpose-built rentals. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean... Look, student housing and seniors are great. They kind of serve the very beginning and the very end of the housing ladder, the housing cycle, or however you want to look at, but consider them the bookends. Yeah. So apartments serve the middle of that. And we mentioned this earlier on the young professionals, millennials, young families, people in transition, people who can't afford to buy a home just yet, or people who chose not to to buy. They just don't want home ownership. Like that's you're allowed to do that, folks. Yeah. Yeah. We always talk about, you know, I, I've had several calls of people that had called me and been like, so Nick, on the, I heard you on the podcast that you don't own a primary residence, but you invest and you, you rent. How dare you? I'm like, I'm like, yeah. They're like, well, I've never thought of that. I'm like, that is, in my opinion, the best way to do it, especially right. if you don't need a primary residence. So Dan, in conclusion, let's just do a quick wrap up here. CMHC and the government are given another $20 billion to hopefully- build another 30,000 rental apartments per year. They want those rental apartments to be for students, seniors, and apartment buildings. So for everyone. <laughs> Which essentially covers yeah. the entire yeah. population. No, yeah. But there are distinct, yeah, I, I do think there are like distinctly different needs for, for, exactly. the, for the category. So it is worth categorizing it. Yeah. Like student rentals are very different than family housing. Yeah. So as a real estate investor, for me, these are, are massive um, you know, trends and, and signs that uh, if you don't have an investment thesis or if you or if you're already invested in a, one of these asset classes or if you're looking for a new market to dive into or divest into, um, I would be paying attention to these kind of things because 20 billion for specific asset classes, I'd be paying attention to those asset classes and I'd be trying to get in if I were you. Yeah, I mean, and and just like the the thing about an investment thesis is you're entitled to creating your own one, and and so what do you think is going to happen as a result of the trends that we just outlined here? Um, the the data that I was trying to find because the household square footage is um, strengththatfootprint.com is where I found it, um, but Canada has the the third largest uh, square footage per capita. Australia is number one, actually. And then the US. Um, got a lot of space in Australia. Yeah, and then Canada. And it's actually um, pulled this up from Statista as well. Um, we are actually seeing the space of homes in Canada from 2015 to 2018 with a forecast until 2023. Uh, it's increasing still. And so, um, you know, I mean, it's the square foot, like on a per capita bit, everyone's like, oh, housing is getting more, more um, or, or less affordable. On a per square foot or per capita as uh, per square foot basis, it might not actually be right. It might be a little bit of houseflation that we're seeing, and it's almost like that disparity that's happening between 
the haves and have-nots, the haves being asset holders and the have-nots being people who don't hold assets. Like Canada has really pumped a lot of money into the primary residence and real estate assets. And so people who don't have them are having a harder time keep up, keeping up with that recovery portion of the post-COVID world. And our goal on this show is to make sure that you're not you're on the right side of that. Um, and so, you know, think about what this population pyramid or population hourglass looks like in Canada. <laughs> And, and try and think about how you want to invest accordingly. We tried to give you a couple of strategies in here. Um, student rentals seem to be a really popular one right now because it's a very, very dire problem that needs to, to be solving. And if you have any questions, anything we can do to help you out in that process, give us a shout. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, if you're a small cap investor or if you're someone that is maybe wanting to build one of these through that MLI Select program, uh, reach out at Land Bank. We help people do that kind of stuff every day across the country. So thanks so much, everybody. Hope you got a ton of value out of this one and uh, we'll see you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.